welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, my buddy, one of my favorite front people, well, ever, Mike Weeb of the legendary Riverboat Gamblers and of the, well, I guess they're they're been around for a while now, but brand new record releasing Dracula's. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page and Instagram page. Both of those are Turned Out a Punk, and those are all run by my brother, show producer, and, and normally guest booker, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do for this show. You can send him a message. He'll get the message to me. Or if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way of supporting the show is by telling everyone you know about it. You can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash turn it a punk and uh, checking out some of the fun stuff that's going on over there. And really huge thank you to everyone who helps out with that thing and contributes to that thing, obviously, as well. Uh, also, thank you to Vans, the fine folks at Vans. You know, they support this podcast and let me do what I do. Uh, for, for a while now, they've been doing that, and I really appreciate them. Um, helping out with this thing. And that's about that. We talk a lot now, so we can just move right on into the show because we got, we got like a, a jam-packed week that, that's going to come at you pretty, pretty quick and heavy this week. We have on the show today, Mike Weeb of the Draculas, of singer, a front person extraordinaire, uh, of course, also of the Riverboat Gamblers. And then coming up in two days, I'm going to be dropping another episode featuring Zach Blair returning to the show for for what is technically his fourth appearance, but only his his real part two. This is only the second real, you know, combo type thing, but he's been on a bunch. I'll get into all that on his episode, but we've got like a, a twofer for you this week in celebration of this brand new, I'm going to say it, friggin' fantastic Dracula's record. I've been listening to this thing. I've been loving this thing. Terminal Amusements is the name. It's got like a, I don't know, like they, they definitely have taken the sound that they kind of got on the first record and are, are, are going deeper with it and taking it new places and yeah, I've been listening to this thing pretty heavy, so uh, it's been great to kind of have a chance to uh, get these guys on the show to talk about it, you know? And it's great how these things work out sometimes. And, of course, that record is on Dine Alone. You can pick it up well, wherever you can pick up records right now. I guess through the, through the mail. Um, and I guess some places there are going to be record stores opening again soon, but probably still safer to get them through the mail for the time being, depending on when you're listening to this thing. Uh, you can also listen to it on various streaming services and things like that. But anyway, Mike is someone who I was very much familiar with through the Riverboat Gamblers, uh, a legendary band, of course, as I'm sure many of you know. Uh, also, I'm sure as many of you know, if you've seen this band, Mike is an unbelievable front person. Just, just out of control. So yeah, it's, it's amazing to get him on the show. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on too much longer. Uh, I'm going to let you sit back, relax and enjoy Mike Weeb of the Dracula's on turned out a punk. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. 
Well, as I was just telling you off air, I think you're one of the all-time great front people, and I'm a big fan of multiples of your bands, so it's an honor to have you here. Man, thank you. That means a lot, because I am a fan of your band and have been for a long time. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm glad this is just audio so you can't see me blush. Oh, well, I'm glad this is audio because you can't. I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> well, mine are mine are. I should not be wearing pants in the state these pants are in. But anyway, let's move on from our fashion choices that are <laughs> safely hidden from view. Um, and I got to start this one off the way they all start off, which is Mike. How did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Uh, I, I mean, it's got to be from the television and watching. Uh, old just that that bad version of punk like the quincy's and uh chips probably honestly probably chips there was an episode and this is like very almost like fetal memories these almost they're like not even fully formed memories but i remember seeing punks on the tv show chips and i didn't even really remember the episode but uh at some point because I'm I'm older ish, and uh, I'm uh, 44 now. I turned I recently turned 32 11 years ago. I I like uh, yeah. I remember I, I just kind of being aware through like various media in TV shows and stuff. And it probably wasn't until um, the sixth grade or so that that I started actually like listening to real punk music and uh there's kid graham jones uh brought a cassette that had it was like a dub and one side had like the misfits and the other side maybe had the dead milkman on it i think and that was kind of and and i made a dub of that and then i think there's and then i think there's like two songs of just some random bands but i didn't know that they weren't the dead milkman i thought that the dead milkman just had two like (laughs) And it was, and I don't even think they were punk songs. It was like some weird, just I don't even know. I just honestly don't even know what they were. I, if I wish I could like track that cassette down and try and figure it out at this point, I guess you could do like Shazam at this point, which I've never. Man, that Shazam. Do you have that on your phone where you can like press a button and find out what a song is on your phone? Absolutely, it's one of those apps that like you know I like. There's a lot that I don't use that are just taking up space, but that's one where I'm always like. What the hell song is that? And I am never, it, it, I never don't react like it's pure magic. Like it is, like it is Jesus walking on water. I still to this day, like, how can it do that? Yeah. We've been to the moon and that is, we, is far more impressive to me that a phone can do that. It's like, I can't, I dreamed of the idea of something like that for so long. Well, like, that's the thing is like, how often do you use walking on the moon? It never gets used by me. Rarely. Rarely. Yeah. I use the Shazam thing like, you know, maybe twice a day sometimes. Yeah, totally. Lance Bass and I don't hang out, so I've never been been to the moon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No no one I know has been to the moon. Like, I'm never going to go to the moon. I don't really need that in my life, but I do need that Shazam thing. Absolutely. So good. Um, going so back good. to that Chips episode, like, yeah, you're right. That's like a run of exploitation stuff, the Quincy one. Yeah, I, I'm i so obsessed with exploitation now. Oh, absolutely. Because it is all these kind of like fetal 
memories that that of things which I'm I'm from Austin, Texas, and uh, I I really like my third parent. My I was really raised by the television. Like I had a mom and dad, but the television was uh, a big time. <laughs> I spent a lot of hours. So whenever I go to L.A., I'm really it feels incredibly comfortable to me to be in LA because I spent so much time watching TV and everything. It doesn't matter, you know, other than a couple things shot in New York, everything, no matter where it was, you know, where, where the story was based, it was still shot in LA. So the countryside, the way, the way the highways look, the way the, the way the alleys look, the way the, the fence, everything is very, very, very familiar. So, mm-hmm. And of course, all that punk stuff that started there is really—it's just—it's weirdly in in my in in the DNA of me, like the the really corny version of punk, like the silly, like you know, a a guy that you know his, his name's Spikes, and he just you know, and the band's called Pain, and he's just like <laughs> something so over the top that I don't think punk rockers definitely in LA were definitely not looking like them. It was like this weird like. Well, we got to cartoon it up because we saw one picture of someone in Piccadilly Circus, you know, probably five years beforehand. And and they just they just like, I don't know, they were super nuts about all that. It feels like punk, though, maybe because it was the time it was coming out, was just so glommed onto by media right away, right? Like there's that infamous sex pistols news footage when they were coming to America. Well, there's the Bill Clinton stuff in England before that. Um, and like, yeah, the chips episode as well, like it right through to, to, you know, like it it felt like it was on Donahue with the New York hardcore stuff. Like it felt like it was like ripe for media scrutiny. Oh, for sure. It was so, and it was super over the top. And the weird thing too, is, you know, watching TV back then, you couldn't, you just get these little, especially, you know, there was never, there wasn't a show about punk. So it was just like these things that were trickled in here and there randomly. Like you you didn't, you didn't watch chips expecting for a punk rocker to show up (laughs) or a punk episode or Quincy or Wonder Woman or Charlie's Angels. Like there was always, they all had an episode where something punk kind of happened around those years, but there was no like, You know, there was no, I mean, I guess maybe a TV guy would have a paragraph, but it probably wouldn't even say when it was on. So it was just these kind of things that popped up here and there. And, and this was, you know, even pre VCR for me anyway, for my family. So there was no, there was no really knowing you just, you just had this little thing like, what was that? That was so exciting. I didn't, I didn't get that. And then maybe later on when we did have like a VCR, like renting stuff like, uh, class of 1984 or tough turf which is like still this crazy cartoony kind of not quite right version of punk but it was still a lot more exciting uh, certainly than anything in suburban uh, denton texas at that time well class of 1984 was filmed in toronto too so that was like, it yeah it was filmed at oh, central wow. tech and the band in it is teenage head who are like our, our ramones in canada yeah 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 i honestly I've been meaning to go back and watch that recently, and I think I started and, and was high and fell asleep. <laughs> I think, uh, it's one of those ones that seems so much better to watch in theory than when you're actually watching it. Yeah. But it is Michael J. Fox's first film role? I think it might be his first role, period. I but. think it is, yeah. He's super young in it. Tough Turf I did watch recently, and um, 
I, I completely, I had vague memories of watching it as a kid, um, but they go, James Spader is the lead character and he befriends a young Robert Downey Jr. And it's a, like a ripped cut, like muscular James Spader. <laughs> and he, he befriends Robert Downey Jr. And in, in the movie, Robert Downey Jr. is the drummer for, it's the Jim Carroll band. But it's Robert Downey Jr. playing drums, and he's got these crazy, like red, like red pleather bondage pants on, and he's got no shirt on, and kind of this weird bondage thing. And it's the Jim Carroll band playing like Jim Carroll songs. They don't do people who had died, but like it's just Jim Carroll. And then the audience is people that are like kind of dressed like vaguely eighties punk, but they're all dancing in a very choreograph choreographized. Is that a word? Probably not, Chore- but choreograph. Thank you. Nope. Uh, a choreograph. Uh, it's Texas schooling, uh, public school, Texas, Denton, Texas. Uh, there it's like this choreographed, like kind of new waved. It's, it's so bizarre, but great. Like I, mm-hmm. I love how misinformed it is. I think I think it maybe made me angry when I was in junior high and like officially getting into punk rock and it was, that seemed all phony. But now, oh, I, I I want it to be more phony than it is. Even I had no idea that was Jim Carroll's band. I, I think so. It. I mean, I I don't know every member of Jim, but it's definitely no, it's Jim, Jim Carroll. Carroll I mean, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know every member either of the band. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's wild. I got to go rewatch that myself now too. But like, even up to Freaks and Geeks, the punk episode of stuff is always you know it's always the best. Yeah, it's the best, even when it's wrong. Like even in the Freaks and yeah. Geeks one, when it's kind of wrong, it's still uh, awesome. Yeah. What's this? What's this song that they're into in Freaks and Geeks? I'm trying to remember. Well, it's Diesel Boys, the band. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's like they could have cast anyone. It's like, really? Diesel Boys? Huh. That's a, an interesting choice for that, for that time that's a, period. That's a, that's a choice. That's a choice. Exactly. And actually there's a, um, on the DC, uh, all the DC TV shows that they have on now. Uh, my kids are big fans of some of them. And there's a bunch of punk episodes in that series as well. Like, are they accurate or are they kind of? Uh, they're, they're like interesting. They definitely have some good sinks in it. Like Luna Chicks in one episode and they had the damned in one episode. They had suicide in a couple episodes of Gotham. Wow. So like some, some bold choices. I do remember seeing, um, uh, the young ones on, uh, PBS, uh, that they were shipping over that that was like the public broadcast they would late night show the young ones and the young ones would have a musical guest and a couple times it would be or one time it was the damn i think motorhead was on there once but one of the characters is kind of you know that was just this weird and you don't have any context to any of it uh it was just it was such a weird grab bag of trying to figure out what punk was and i didn't have like an older cool friend to explain any of it to me mm-hmm. uh it's it was it was i never had uh i never I, a lot of people have like a story of like that guy that came in from california or, or new york or you know philadelphia and they just kind of like laid it all out for him but I, I i feel like i didn't have that until like mid high school to kind of like contextualize it all and put it all together and and put uh put stuff on the map and the other thing too i mean about like a lot of that being a kid and that that TV show, like anything that is before two years ago, is old. So I never, I never had like a real idea of. And also, anyone older than you is just like an old person. So 
I never really had the idea of who, like what bands were current or what bands just broke up and also what bands were big or not. Like I just, I thought like if you were in a band, like you were famous and made a lot of money. So when I'd hear, like, I didn't know the difference between like how much money, like, uh, I don't know, like Genesis made compared to like the Sex Pistols or something like that. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know, I didn't know how, I, it was just everybody that was in a band was famous. So when I did like in like the sixth grade or so start learning about like the misfits, I'm like, Oh yeah. So they're like, they're kind of like, I don't know, like the Rolling Stones or something. They make it, they fly around on jets and, and stay in, in buses and stuff. <laughs> uh, but like going back to before, you know, that time period, what kind of music were you into growing up? Um, I think I, there was a little chunk of like hair metal before I, I, but I really feel like it was like, well, this is like closer to what I meant. Like I didn't, I didn't like love really any, it, well, I really wasn't until punk kind of stuff that I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is, this is what I've, I've always kind of, this is always what I wanted. I liked, uh, I remember liking Thriller by Michael Jackson because it was about horror movies. And, um, I remember I had a lot of soundtracks to movies and I, just because they reminded me of the movies, but, and then I guess like maybe like fourth or fifth grade when like hair metal and I could see some of that on MTV, but right when that, I seriously, that, that misfits dead milkman, that was immediately like, Oh, this is, this is what I want to be listening to the whole time. Oh, and the Ramones. I think the first time I heard the Ramones was the, a, uh, it was like a Bud Light commercial with a uh, um they're like a, it's like a it was Blitzkrieg Bop over a like like a stock car racing or like a Formula F1 car and i i've researched and found like yo that is a real thing that that actually exists and i think like reading Ramones biography they're like oh that was the first time they finally like had you know two nickels to scrape together and um was that, that a regional, way, and I, sorry I didn't mean to cut you off was that a regional commercial or is it like was that a nationwide commercial I think it was nationwide wow. I think it was like a full and it was a little bit later but it's such a weird grab but like I said it's a weird grab bag of when I found I found out about some things way later mm-hmm. than other people and just because again I just didn't have like an older person to explain any of it to me well, and and I, and I had a conservative family who kind of they didn't they didn't ban that stuff, but it was sort of shielded. Mm-hmm. That kid that brought that tape in, do you know where they came across it? Oh man, I have no idea. Other than he was a bad kid, and I wasn't supposed to <laughs> hang out with him. Well, where'd you kind of go after getting this tape? Did you kind of go down the path with this bad kid, or was it just? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was he was into skateboarding and uh and I got super into skateboarding. And that would be that would a hundred percent be the second uh like handhold into into skate into punk because in Thrasher magazine, you, when you'd flip through there'd be an ad page and there was there was always a couple uh I don't even know what I guess just music stores or like record labels or something that would just have like these ads, these tiny, tiny little ads with uh, all just different like punk logos. And then you would see like skaters would be wearing, you know, like Steve Caballero would be wearing a Misfits shirt or, you know, J- they'd have like article with JFA. And it was, that was the point of like connecting it all together. And my culture of 
skateboarding came through or my culture of punk came through skateboarding and i know that didn't necessarily happen for different people in different areas but that's probably another reason why i'm still like i feel so comfortable and enjoy being in southern california is because when i'm there is because it was also like all these skate videos that i watched over and over and over again that the soundtrack was a lot of a lot of the bands on those old skate videos like i don't even know like they weren't big bands. They didn't make it out like Sub Society or Kirk and the Jerks. And uh but but I know them just from like freeze framing this <laughs> copy of a copy of a copy of a video and trying to connect when it was. I would I would go and press, you know, record on a cassette and put the the boombox up to the TV to record the skate video while it was playing and then we would take the boombox outside and play it while we skated. So I've got all these weird, there's all these like random bands that I don't even necessarily know who they are. I just, I know this, I know like the song really well, but uh, there's this band called, I don't even know the band's name that had a song called Today is Payday that played over Jeff Grosso's part, RIP Jeff Grosso, who just passed away. Um, but, you know, that stuff is so like in the core dna of like of kind of everything that i do that occasionally somebody will go like, oh this sounds like that i'm like man i wasn't even thinking of that but yeah why wouldn't it sound like that because that's like all i listened to for so long <laughs> what about locally was there any kind of punk bands that were happening when you that you saw as a young kid you know i denton texas like there was a scene for sure because we had like this college music town but by the time I started going to shows, grunge was kind of starting to happen. Like that when I was old enough to kind of get into stuff, it was real like there was a real kind of uh, druggy, psychedelic, heavy music scene. So I saw, I mean, it's, you know, it's punk adjacent. It's like alternative music, but it wasn't quite my thing, but I still liked a lot of these bands a lot. In fact, there was a band from Denton called Brutal Juice that well, were they kind put of... Seven Inch out on Man's Ruin, right? They did. And they also put out something, they put out a live record on Alternative Tentacles. Okay, yeah. And then they put out a, um, they had a cassette that they, I think they self-released that I listened to a lot. And then they put out one record on a major. They, they got signed to um, Interscope. Uh, the Toadies, who oh, Zach's, Zach's brother's in, they got signed to Interscope, and then they kind of opened the door for a bunch. Because around that time, you know, early 90s, everybody was, all the labels were looking for the next Seattle. And there was like a, there with the Toadies, I think they thought, well, maybe the Dallas Fort Worth area is the next Seattle. So a bunch of people got signed up, but brutal juice were this really, really wild band that did, they kind of go into psychedelic parts, but then they did have these like super catchy choruses and the lead, they like a lead singer that played guitar, but then they had this other guy who just sort of sang backups, but was kind of like the, the front man for the band. And he had the wildest stage persona and he would like, his name is Craig Welch, and he he would like put out cigarettes on his head and just be naked and just really. I remember being very frightened 
of uh, of him. And uh, man, they were so they were so good. They occasionally do shows here and there, but they were like a huge influence as far as like live shows. Where it's like, oh, that that's that's what it's supposed to be like, you know? Like it's supposed to be intense and and it just felt like so much more. They felt like so much more than all the other bands were playing live. I was never not kind of in awe when I watched them. And I always kind of thought like, Oh, that's, that's how it needs to be. It kind of needs to feel like that initially, you know, now I'm, now I think it can be anything it wants to be on stage, but like it was such a visceral kind of weird experience to see them that, yeah, that was, and they were great. What about, I think hash something, I thought it was hash palace, but I don't think it's hash palace, but they're like a kind of grunge band. I thought they were from, Maybe from Dallas, Texas, around that time. Hash Palace. Maybe it's not Hash Palace. I I, I'm I'm blanking on the name now. I can picture the seven inch cover. But- huh. There was there was a band called Dope House. There was a whole scene called the Fraternity of Noise in Denton, and there was this old frat house called the Delta Lodge, and and they still went by the Delta Lodge, but I don't think they were. I think that that maybe at one point they were a literal fraternity, but like got kicked out. And it was kind of like, uh, it was kind of like animal house, yeah. the movie animal house, except for like, maybe add like a lot of hard drugs, like not, not even just like fun alcohol, but like kind of gnarly hard drugs. And, uh, that's, it was this crazy house and they would have this epic haunted house every year that was super scary. And there would be like nudity and, and it was not <laughs> safe for children. And they, they had house shows in there. And that was my very first band played there. And that's, and and before that band, that's where I saw Brutal Juice and all these other like fraternity of noise bands who were really, those bands were cool doing really interesting, weird things. But it was a little while later to when I kind of like figured out like what I wanted to, to my stuff to sound like. Uh, I, I don't know that I was as connected to like, I was, I was more of a, more of a fan of just watching the the kind of heavy, druggier, uh, grungier, Jesus lizardier stuff, and then it wasn't until like kind of figuring out like, oh, I can. It was always like ah, oh, the misfitsy kind of sounding sing along stuff that I was like, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. What you was know? what was like? Uh, sorry, going back, what was your first band called? It was called I well my first first thing was like kind of a comedy uh it was like a rock and roll comedy act called Clovis Mitchell and it was me and another guy and a drum machine and then me and that guy started a band with Foddy who's in or th- I think they had a band and I went off for college and came back they had a band and we kind of merged it all together Foddy who's in the Riverboat Gamblers and uh who so I've been playing with Foddy in bands for since like you know, like 95. Um, and it, but this band we started, it was called the skeleton kids. And, uh, we, and then our little, so I would say like our, if you did like graduating classes, brutal juice and baboon and the toadies, they were kind of like the graduating, they were like seniors when we were freshmen or sophomores. Um, and so, but and my class was kind of skeleton kids and the role models and the odd fellows and the role models were like a punk band uh kind of poppy punk and the odd fellows were a surf band like an instrumental surf band 
And then a couple years later, after this, after that, like we, those three bands were kind of doing stuff and we had our own little scene and it wasn't at the Delta Lodge. We, it was at a, a different house called the Bonnie Bray house. And those bands kind of morphed into the Oddfellows morphed into a band called the Reds and, um, the skeleton kids and the role models kind of the skeleton kids became kid chaos and then kid chaos and role models kind of morphed together and became riverboat gamblers and the reds turned into the marked men. Oh, um, okay. yeah. the reds, the reds kind of broke up and initially Fadi, who was in, who's in the gamblers and skeleton kids, he was in the reds. And then when that kind of things kind of shifted around and one guy moved to Japan and they became the marked men. And then when that guy moved back from Japan, I got with the marked men guys and the guy from Japan and that became high tension wires. Ah. So like, yeah, marked men and riverboat gamblers kind of have all these in high tension wires. It was all just really, it's kind of the same, like eight people just kind of switching places and everybody kind of played in each other's bands and started off little new projects and stuff for, for many of those years for that kind of that graduating class. And then there's been classes that just kind of keep happening after that. Like a couple of years later, you hear about these kids and they had some band called parquet courts and then I'm like, what? Oh, Oh really? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that was a, that was a good graduating class. Um, and then, and then, and then now, uh, there's, then the, uh, there's a band called the bad sports that were some guys. And now those guys are like playing in Dracula's and, and radioactivity. So it kind of just kind of keeps, there's this weird Denton thing that just keeps happening and circling. And when Dracula's were going out and, uh, Zach couldn't do it cause he, he, um, had rise against stuff. We ended up like kind of trying some people out to do some touring stuff. And of course, like, even though Austin is like the live music town, all these people, like we ended like everybody we founded was like these three dudes who, who live in Denton who like, <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just such like a, it's such a weird little, little pocket. And I never, you know, in the scene when, when that river, when the riverboat gamblers were first starting out and, and, uh, reds and all that, when we were doing all these house shows, I kind of, we had, it was right in that Gilman gold rush where, where it was yeah, a couple of years after grunge and green day were just exploding and rancid were on, you know, regular radio and everything was, everybody was looking for like the new punk and man, the scene was so insane. We would have these house shows that were just, you know, hundreds of people showing up. And I kind of thought like, man, it's going to be like this everywhere. I can't wait to go tour. And it's just, and it was, it was not like that everywhere. <laughs> it was, it was definitely like, uh, 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 an awakening that man we had this really special thing in in denton texas for like three years in that era it was so cool it's also wild how there is like you're saying there's like all these different classes of bands that that kind of like make it out there nationally or, or internationally yeah and, and i can't like you know i can't think of too many bands from austin that did that i can't think of too many bands from dallas that did that like you know i can think of one or two examples certainly but but it feels like you're right. Denton, Texas just consistently kind of churns out these scenes. Yeah, it is really weird. And my only, my theory on Denton is that there's, there's less, there's maybe there's not quite as much to do there. So when you do a band, 
And there's also not any industry there. Not that there's like tons in Dallas, but there is this sense of there were, I remember the time we were doing stuff, there would be these like these bands in Dallas and they always felt like they, they, they got their eight by 10 pictures made before they ever had their first band practice. Yeah. And that might be like characterizing Dallas a little negatively, but I think a lot of people will characterize Dallas a little negatively. Um, but, and it's not all like that. Cause there were some really cool Dallas bands, but like, um, there, it always felt like, well, we just, it was just this such a cool scene. You were just kind of doing it for there. That being said, it made us horrible businessmen when we actually started trying to like, to like put out records and go on tour. Like I, I there's still some basic business shit that I'm just now figuring out and realizing like, Oh my God, I could have been doing this the whole time. I'm such a moron. Well, maybe I need to be hip to that stuff afterwards. So we'll talk after the podcast yeah. for that, for those things. But it's funny. Cause like when De- Zach was on the show, he talked about hagfish and how hagfish got signed to this like Dallas based, like entertainment company that would tour them. And I think the toadies were involved in that too. Yeah. Together as this package tour. And it does seem very much like, like much more music industry than what you're describing in Denton. And we didn't like, I didn't really know Zach until, uh, later, much later. And we, and it was weird. Like, even though hagfish were, I mean, every people, they just like, didn't really cross over into the Denton scene that much. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't really, Denton was so insular and we always kind of felt like, and I think all we would have had to do is just ask them, you know, we just, I think we kind of just thought like, oh, well, they're a professional. We just, we do house shows here. And, um, I think all we would have had to do is ask him, but it did feel like, I remember being like, not super frustrated, but like sort of annoyed that I felt like we had so much cool stuff going on in Denton. Cause I'm leaving out like a bunch of cool, interesting Denton bands, like the Sillies and, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other cool people doing stuff. And I always felt like the, the, the weekly, the, like the Dallas observer and the Dallas scene was kind of like, they just kind of completely ignored Denton. And I thought like, well, we're doing, there's so much more interest, like not counting myself at all. Like there's so much more interesting things happening out of Denton, you know, like everything that Jeff Burke does is, is gold. Why isn't this, why doesn't this get one mention in the paper when this same, you know, like this guy that's been playing rockabilly for like 80 years just gets like a full page write up every single week. Cause he's doing a residency. It's like, there's gotta be more going on in the area. Yeah. No, it's funny how it's like, you know, this is in, in the pre internet time, how you'd have whole scenes that could be completely overlooked just because the music writers were just like, yeah, geographically it doesn't fit in what we want to cover. Or yeah. They just weren't yeah. into it taste wise. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's that locally, it was the weekly. I mean, that was it. Yeah. That was the yeah. only like people that were kind of talking about any of it. So you, you kind of were really like a lot more hungry to get a little spot in a weekly or whatever. What going back to before, you know, the house shows and stuff, what was the first like concert period that you went to? Um, I think the first, the first concert I went to, my folks took me to Neil Diamond. Good one. That man, that man is a showman. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Started off with a good first front person. I remember, yeah, I remember, like, I was probably in the sixth grade, and uh, I was, like, not, like, into, I was like, I didn't want to go. 
And I listened to Iron Maiden uh, Power Slave on cassette Walkman the entire way there. And then I remember kind of like being kind of snotty and cool. And then like probably by like song two, I was like, man, this is really good. This is pretty cool. And like really enjoying the show. And then like maybe a year or two later, I actually, the first like parents drop you off show my my buddy's mom dropped us off to see Iron Maiden and uh, Anthrax, and that was pretty. But it was like the worst seats. It was like just <laughs> like these seats right in front of like a giant like stone pillar, and I just had to spend the entire like show with my neck crane. Like the top top, but I remember it being a really really big venue, and we were in the back, but I. I it's a weird thing of, of how memory plays tricks. Like, I wonder how big it was now. Like, I don't remember what I would like to go back and see how big that venue is now. Cause there's a lot of things that even like from when I first started playing like certain clubs and go like, man, this club's huge. And then play there like, you know, five years later and go like, Oh wait, it's not really that big at all. It's just kind of, <laughs> kind of medium. yeah. Especially when you're younger too. And you're like physically smaller. Everything oh yeah. That much bigger. Totally. Totally. So what was the first punk show you went to? Was it that house show? I think it was probably, yeah, it was probably at, at yeah, it was at the Delta Lodge, I think. The first, I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was, you know, again, it was kind of like more like punk adjacent kind of stuff, but real like indie, DIY, grungy, weird. And honestly, it was probably some bands that I don't, I don't know that it was a brutal juice show. It might have been baboon, but I it was probably something I don't even remember. There was a band that I remember getting into at a club called The Library, and I think the band's name was Underground or The Underground, and they had a song about Swamp Thing, about the comic book <laughs> Swamp Thing. And I remember being very I remember being just kind of taken by being in there, and then I thought it was really cool that they had a song about Swamp Thing, but I can't remember if that was the first show. I think there was like, there was a summer that I started um, probably like the seventh or eighth grade that I started taking like a, I would take like a, a bus to uh, the college area and I would just skateboard all day into the night. And then I, I think if I like left, I was start, like my parents were starting to let if I, if I was at a friend's house, I could be home at like 11 or something like that. But we would do the old like I'm at his house. He's at my house. Kind of lie to the parents and uh, get home late, even though we were out gallivanting all night until 11 anyway. You know, um, so were touring bands kind of play at this with like the Brutal Juice kind of house or like in the scene? Like like would, would like was it a stop for bands kind of coming through? Um. I, I I think it might again like that class ahead of me I wasn't like as privy to a lot of stuff going on but then when my like you know class of like kid chaos in early riverboat camp like when that was happening and and the reds um that was yeah we became a real hot Again, that kind of Gilman gold rush mm -hmm. of like all that Green Day boom. Man, we had like I've got flyers for house shows that that Jimmy World played at the drive-in. Um, played. And I, I think my favorite, the one of the coolest shows that I still have ever been to. Even yeah, I don't even think like wearing nostalgia glasses to to remember this. Like there's a show that this band from Japan. 
called Jackie and the Cedrics. And the, 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 the bass player, his, his like stage name is Rockin' Jelly Bean. And he's an artist. He did like, he did, he's, you've probably seen some of his art on a bunch. He definitely did like a, like a teen generate 10 inch, but he's got this really cool, cool art style. He does a lot of kind of like surfy, like hip, uh, kind of, I don't know. There's a very certain kind of like swinging sixties artwork style that he has. Anyway, Jackie and the Cedrics, I don't know how, who booked this tour, but they were an instrumental surf band and they flew in and played like an LA or show, maybe two LA shows, then flew into Dallas, Fort Worth and played one show in Denton, Texas in a <laughs> shitty house called the wannabe Manor, and then flew to New York and played a show. And it was one of the most mind blowing cool things and it was these japanese guys came out and you know somebody dropped them off and they didn't speak english and they were you know or very minimal english and they were really kind of overwhelmed and, and just seemed very polite and a little like and it was just you know this punk house this really awful awful punk house that just you know everything was falling apart <laughs> and um and people are like smoking pot and they're like, we, can we try this? And they were like, we, they, it's very illegal in Japan. And we're like, yeah, it's illegal here too. Um, and they, then at some point they go into their car, uh, or their van that they had rented and they all come out in like powdered blue ruffled tuxedos and they go inside. I mean, just this stain shit. They had somebody had a dog there that just shit on the floor everywhere. And they they plug in these vintage guitars and these tuxedos and uh, and they play the most blistering, amazing surf set I've ever seen. And they're just jumping around and he's playing through this clean amp, like hitting hitting every note perfectly. And it was it was just it was so mind blowing. And that was definitely like an early moment of like I mean I didn't like think go like well if a band from Japan can do this then certainly I can do this. But there has to be something in seeing that and having this kind of amazing thing like man you can you can just do that. You can just kind of go somewhere and play a show and there might be people like there was something in that that goes like wow I I, I want to do that. I want to go to Japan. I want to go other places. That was definitely before I'd ever like thought about leaving town before. I remember the first tour, like thinking like, man, we're going to be gone for a whole week. Will anyone know us when we get back? <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's like, so, you know, unheard of, like in any other scene, like the idea of going on tour is just like an impossibility, but for punk, it's like, it's uh, within reach very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely kind of going back to like the when you're a kid or when I was a kid and didn't know like how, oh, you're in a band, you're famous. There's that weird thing of like, I don't know, somebody pays for all the tour and you're just like, you don't know how any of it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, even like that class, like I said, like the class that was a couple head when like Brutal Juice was getting signed to a major and I kind of, you know, I I was, you know, I was kind of like the freshman talking to a senior. So I'd occasionally like go up and try and be cool and like, Hey man, what's up? And, but it felt so like, felt so young compared to those guys who were literally like maybe, you know, three or four years older than me. But at that time it felt like, you know, they're grown ups and I am a, I'm a little baby. And, but you know, and you kind of, I hear little pieces of them talking about their tour and not, in my head, it was like, oh yeah, they're in a, they were in a, a magic bus the whole time, and <laughs> and but I'm sure I, I'm I, now I know for a fact because I've talked to him. Like, no, it was the exact same thing. Even though it was a major, it was still like 
you know, and I think they did some touring a little bit before that, but you just don't have any idea mm-hmm. how any of that works. Mm-hmm. No, it's a real like process of demystification when you get into punk rock about how yeah, all, all works, put out records and all that kind of stuff too. Totally. How totally. Did, how did your first band come together? Skeleton kids. Like how old were you? And, and when that band came together, were you still in high school? I was, I was out of high school. All the other guys were still in high school and I went to, uh, I graduated high school and went to college in Santa Fe, New Mexico on a, on a theater kind of scholarship. And I was there for two years. And I think the first year I came back over the summer and I think I started that the, the comedy band with the drum machine and we only played like one or two shows, but it was way more of like, let's, let's, I, I couldn't play at all and I didn't know how to drink. It was really just like the, the music was a service to do a joke. Like we had a joke, we had a joke song about, it was like during the OJ trial, I remember. And it was, this, we had a joke song about how OJ was totally innocent, which has been proven right, Damien. I don't know if you heard. <laughs> I've uh, heard, I've heard. He was, he was acquitted. Um, but, and then I went back to college, but was really not doing great, like, mental health wise was just really depressed out there and just kind of going through that and just kind of flamed out and came back. And I I think I was planning, I was going to try and go back to college, but somehow started this, this band with Mike and then Foddy, uh, who I knew from playing street fighter two at the, uh, malls (laughs) at local (laughs) malls. And, and it was, you know, when it was just going to be a thing maybe to do that summer, but that first show at the Dirty Delta Lodge house was so like it was so amazing and 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 the fact that people liked it and i it was such a good time that it was pretty it was i i think i kind of decided pretty much right then and there like i'm not going back to santa fe like i can't i, I want to i just want to stay do this and because and I still occasionally do get acting work and do some acting stuff, but immediately it was like, I don't have to audition for any of the stuff. We just write shows or we write songs and then you just put on your own show and mm-hmm. you just like, so it was immediately like, I don't, it felt like acting was like all this work to get turned down to perform. And with a band, like, no, you just work and then you go perform. So it was immediately like, why wouldn't I just keep doing this? Yeah, no, and and like especially as you're saying, like you know, like it seems like acting would be so much solid, more solitary than being in a band. Yeah, yeah, it's just and it's just not as fun. Just the weird thing with acting of like you can, you know, you can even at like a theater level, and definitely in the commercial world too. It's like it doesn't have anything to do with like talent. It's like well you're a little bit too thin or you're a little bit too tall or you're, your hair, you know, you're a little bit too whatever, like physical things that you have absolutely no control over for the most, for the most part, you know, especially for like commercial work or whatever. Like it's just, when I go on a commercial auditions, I completely look at it as like a scratch off lotto ticket. It's like, <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's $2 instead of $2 to, to a sort of scratch off. It's, 20 minutes of my time and there's like you know one out of every 20 times they you know maybe at some point they want someone who looks kind of like crispin glover and i get the gig (laughs) you could have been in back to the future too oh man that's a dream i I guess right i would have yeah i would have i would have definitely take i will say 
Back to the Future One, I don't think it's enough credit for uh, bolstering skateboarding in general. Yeah, I think you're right on that one. Definitely. And like how many kids tried to throw their skateboard under a car and climb over the car while it was parked. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Fell on their face, myself uh, included. Yeah. yeah, I definitely didn't didn't couldn't pull that off. <laughs> definitely. I I miss skateboarding so much, but I I had like a thing I was working on. I was like it was a we were shooting something at a skate park and I brought out my skateboard and just immediately ate shit and like just like rolling on the flat ground i was like oh man well i can still yeah what was the sound of that first band like the skeleton kids i i we i think we did that thing where I, a lot of first bands do where we're like we like everything so i we, we had like a we had a ska song and we had like a hardcore song yeah. and we had like a kind of couple like pop punk songs and then we had like one like you know fat records kind of song that had like 47 different parts that you know <laughs> yeah. and like it was just one of it was like one of every every style of songs in the vaguest of like the punk genre <laughs> And what but it was pretty funny. Like it was all like I mean, all the all the songs were like a joke somehow. Nothing. It wasn't serious. It was like uh, I'm uh, trying to remember some of this. Like uh, there's a song called "Ape Girl," and there's a song about like guys in white vans snatching kids, but like in a real jokey kind of way. And I think uh, maybe we maybe we resurrected the OJ Simpson song probably for back. Skeleton Kids. Was there what? How did this go over though? At this kind of like you know, druggy, like sl- sludged out kind of house. I you know I think it went well. I remember it going really well. Maybe just because it was the and I, I guess just because it was funny. You know, I, I think probably just because we were clearly like having fun. And there was a lot of energy behind it and that it was that there were a lot of jokes in it, too. Jokes can definitely like win things over, I think, you know, like I think there was something. And I don't know that any of the the sludgy, druggy stuff, I don't none of those. They were all like pretty like they were all like pretty fun people. That's just kind of for whatever reason, what they're into like that, that and drugs. But like um they they were all like we we were friends. I was friends with a young like like I said like a, the 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 brutal juice and, and toadies and all them were that kind of like next level. But then there were some other bands and there was a there was a band that I would kind of occasionally jump around with and do stuff called Sodom and Gomorrah Liberation Front that were kind of like an industrial like. Um, industrial kind of ministry sounding stuff and i would like i would like drag out like i I would make these videotapes i would make like video collages with just two vcrs and like cut all these like scenes from weird movies and i would drag out all these uh tvs like old big giant cathode ray tvs it was awful and but set them up all over the stage and like try and play them and i would you know whatever kind of jump around and try and scream um a little bit but it was it was kind of like it was more like their band and i was kind of like the av guy and i was kind of trying to rip off what the brutal juice guy did a little bit did did this band record at all 
Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not on any of the recordings, but yeah, there's a couple cassettes floating out there. I don't think they ever had like a a vinyl release, but they had a couple cassettes. Which is that weird thing is I wonder how many bands out in that era, you know, you couldn't afford to do vinyl, and vinyl maybe was vinyl was like the thing of like, oh, you're a legitimate band now. But there were definitely bands that like, you know, probably made a decent income off cassettes. I mean that. That first Brutal Juice cassette seemed so legit to me, you know? Oh, yeah. And, like, the Bare Naked Ladies first – or maybe it's their second tape. They sold something like 40,000 copies of, and it started, like, a whole distribution company, page distribution yeah. on the back of it. So, like, yeah, there was, like, a, a lot of ta- – even, like, in my eyes, remember when their demo came out, it sold something like 2,000 copies of a tape yeah. in 99. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, – Yeah. It was that thing of like you, you know, you you could you had to have tapes for a while too. Like you 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 couldn't go out with just vinyl and, and I, for a while too. I do remember that brief area where you would have CDs, vinyl, and cassette, and now it's kind of just vinyl and cassette. It's weird. Occasionally, like somebody just emailed Draculas and we're like, "Do you have the album on CD?" And I was like, "No, no, <laughs> I don't even know." Yeah, I mean, no, <laughs> I don't even have a CD player. My computer doesn't even like take CDs. Not that I don't mean to be like admonished, but like, man, not I, not like you're an idiot for thinking that. But that weird thing of like, no, I just hadn't even thought to do that. You know, like. Are there? I mean, it, I, it makes sense. I have I have a giant box of CDs that I don't ever listen to but i just can't bear to throw away the artwork in those mm-hmm. cassettes or in the in the you know the the jewel cases or whatever and some of it and and i i you know it's i don't have a ton of money to go replicate all of it on vinyl at least not like you know some stuff some stuff i'll i'll get as time goes on but i'm also trying to get new stuff that i've never had on vinyl and yeah but i just can't bear to throw away some of that stuff and it just gets moved from house to house. Yeah, you just end up just like it stays in it stays in garages or whatever, crawl spaces. Yeah, no, and there's also like, you know, like you're talking about how many of these bands just never got anything but a tape done. Like you can't even replicate yeah. it. You can't even replace this stuff. You know? Yeah, for sure. That's that's definitely like that Sodom and Gomorrah liberation from I'm sure one of the guys in the band has digitized it and it exists somewhere but i i remember man and i can say it because they were just my buddies like especially for like an industrial kind of weirdo uh thing that they were doing man it was really cool they had some awesome songs um and i wish it was commercially available more some of that yeah i wonder i wonder what i bet there's some just insane stuff that you and i will never hear oh yeah that just never got out of you know Poughkeepsie that just did a cassette just did like four songs yeah no I think everyone from every- and they sunk all their money into it too you know yeah oh, yeah 100% and like especially at the time where you're talking about where you know putting out a record was impossible putting out a CD was really costly so like you know you're putting out this tape and then how many people held on to these tapes like what happened to the rest of the stuff that yeah we're just never going to hear it yeah, it's, it's in a shoebox somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, even like, yeah, and sorry, go on. It is a weird thing that you can, well, yeah, and you can, like, because sometimes, but it's only on vinyl. 
that somebody like kind of rediscovers this band on vinyl mm-hmm. and it gets put out. But like, it's, yeah, I, I never really heard of that happening for a cassette. There's been, I'm trying to think of like some of the like super, I guess siege, like a heart, like, but they were, that was more in the eighties. Like there's trying, there's trying to think of some like cassette only bands. I'm sure there's some, but you don't know, be even like, Backsides didn't come out on vinyl till like almost 10 years later, right? The Riverboat Gamblers record. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, that's right. It was just on CD. Same with uh, the self titled record, too. Um, and honestly, I don't even know. Yeah, the rights, I think, might be tied up in that stuff still, too. We just kind of did it. We just put it out. It was at some point, like, we didn't even know where to find the guy. And we were just like, well, we'll just put it out on vinyl. Yeah. And uh, with our buddy and, and our buddy Chris. And yeah, it took and we just redid the artwork because we had done such a, a bad job of it <laughs> the first time. I think I did the artwork on the first on those two things. And uh, I don't I don't I don't do that anymore. I think I think the artwork on the uh, on backslides is cool because it's like kind of like it looks like, you know, a Thrasher magazine, obviously, but like way ahead before everyone started getting super into Thrasher. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's Jeff Jeff Phillips on the cover, the the Texas skater, famous Texas skater. Also, R.I.P. Jeff Phillips. Yeah, rest in peace. I, exactly. Um, but how did you guys get hooked up? I guess we're jumping ahead, actually. So going back to how did Kid Chaos kind of form out of the ashes of the? Um. Oh, the bass player of Skeleton Kids uh, went away on his Mormon mission after he graduated high school. Uh, to Guatemala. So we wanted to do something new. And yeah, me and Fadi turned turned it. And I guess we got a new drummer. And yeah, we started Kid Chaos after that. And it had a bunch of members. And we, we kind of wanted to be kind of like a pop punk rocket from the crypt where we never had, we had horns, but we never did ska songs. And we wanted to be kind of like a more like pop punk. And I, it had a couple members. And we, we actually had this really... There, so I'm trying to remember the year. There was this crazy heroin boom that went through the DFW, and all these kids. There was a rich town, a rich, more wealthy suburb called Plano, Texas, and it made like all the news. All these kids, all these like rich kids, were dying in Plano, Texas, from this heroin boom. And we had this uh, drummer who, like, none of us, man, none of us even, I. I I don't. I don't even know that I've even seen. I, yeah, none of us fucked with heroin at all. At I mean, like, I don't even think I like smoked pot then, even. But like, maybe a couple of us drank. But the drummer, eighteen years old, like tries this, like you know, snorts it one night and and uh, ODs and passes away. Holy shit! And then yeah, and it was a real. And then the band kind of did some stuff with some different people for a few more years. And I think the record that came out, he wasn't on it. We kind of just did it because it was like, well, you know, we have these songs that we did. And, you know, we at the time it was kind of this misguided. I don't know that it was misguided. We just wanted to do them because he had played on those songs. And the band was just, it was just a real kind of like, we never really knew exactly why we were doing it after that, other than it felt like it would be like, you know, kind of giving up on him or something like that. I don't know. And it just kind of dissolved after a while, but the Riverboat Gamblers started 
during that band. Um, but there was, it was like a weird kind of like, I don't know. We were kind of doing it just because it felt weird not to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that was a real weird thing that happened in, it was like, it was very much like national, if not international news that there was just like all these rich kids that were, were done. And he was not a rich kid at all, but like some of that trickled into Denton. Well, like you're saying, um, earlier about, you know, the, the scene in Denton, um, like the generation before you and, and the harder drugs that kind of were in some parts of that scene, Texas, I guess, cause it's such a, a, an entry point, but it just feels like the drug culture there gets like super heavy, super quick. Yeah. I think it might. And it's weird that I kind of, maybe it was because like I said, I, I, you know, I was kind of always dealing with some mental, like heavy, heavy, like depression and OCD issues, which is why a big part of the reason why I didn't go back to school and wasn't doing well in school. So I always kind of avoided, I knew that like, well, that's just, that's just going to make all this worse, you know? And even, I think at the time, even if I smoked pot, I'd kind of just really lose it. So, and then, you know, that weird little class of, uh, of, of our crew for the most part, like that reds, uh, all the, nobody was super, like everybody drank and some people smoked pot, but for whatever reason, nobody did that. But yeah, that class I had, like they definitely were. And yeah, there was, I definitely remember like going to like parties and stuff, like in later years, like going to Austin and like going to like Dallas and some of those other scenes and just feeling like, Ooh, these is feeling a little like, like a, like a little kid all over again and being a little sketched out by all of it. And now at this point, like I've seen and been around everything and, you know, done probably more than I should have, but like, but man, yeah, at the time, like nobody, nobody jumped into it that hard except for that. And maybe, maybe some of that was because Corey, you know, that just to that call, like, like not only was just like, like Corey tried heroin, not only that he, Oh, he's gone. Like from that point it was, I, I never really thought about that till now, but maybe that was another thing that really kind of like everybody within that friend group was really, maybe that kept away even like, like cocaine and stuff like that. I felt like it kind of like for a long time, it kept that stuff away. Like everybody was really freaked out and weirded out by it. Yeah, it makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah, I never really, happened. never even really tracked that until right now. Um, so you mentioned the gamblers kind of overlap. Like, how did the gamblers come together uh, in the beginning? And also, how did you hook up with Gearhead? Like, how long in the band is that first Gearhead record? Actually, I guess that's after the self-titled record. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think the gamblers played for like four years. Or like we. We even broke up for like six months for no reason. I don't really remember why. Um, like, and it was just very much like we didn't play out of Austin or out of Denton for like two years or something. And then we would start to trickle down into Austin. I don't, I don't know. At some point, like we were doing house shows and we were getting on shows with bands that we liked. And it was just getting feedback from these touring bands going like, why don't you, why are you guys why, why haven't you left town? Why don't you have anything out? Why aren't you doing stuff? Like, and hearing that enough, cause I've always just kind of had pretty, like, like I said, Denton was just real. Like there was no business acumen. It was just like, I don't know. I just want to 
keep playing so we can play with the bands that I like when they come through and we can party with them. That's going to be, that's, that's what to do. And then after hearing that enough going, okay. And then starting to come down to all and Austin had this, you know, this, this is like, uh, this is like a little ways after like all the green day boom and stuff like that. Like that's still going on. And that's, they're all like solid major, all these, you know, fat and epitaph or these kind of juggernauts. But, and I liked all that stuff, but then like, starting to get this like other scene of like all like the estrus bands and the gearhead bands and um you know even a little bit of man's ruin and uh who am i leaving out i'm leaving out somebody like rip off records yeah and all that stuff uh was really like oh this is even kind of more I, I kind of got even more drawn into that because it was, you know, the energy of that, but it was also lo-fi and it was kind of a little bit off to the side. And Austin had this like amazing scene that was pretty like solid and kind of the, the, in my view at the time. And I think all the gamblers guys would say like the Motards, there's this band called the Motards who were like kind of the Kings of that. And, and, you know, Austin was a destination for like garage shock and uh there was a whole like that and i didn't know that like these again this is kind of a little bit the naivete is not as big but it was a little bit like well i didn't know that all these bands aren't as big as they are in austin everywhere but like <laughs> now it was like oh yeah like that you know yeah the new mom turks did well everywhere but they did like they were huge in austin and like all our friends everybody in austin so we started going down gamblers start playing austin and uh yeah we got invited on a I don't remember if it was a gearhead festival. It definitely wasn't garage rock, but it was like a garage rock festival. I'm pretty sure it was a gearhead festival and just and just it was the one time you you exciting that sometimes is in movies where like you play a show and it goes really well and immediately the person you want to put out your record because Mike Lavella runs over and goes like, I want to sign you guys right now. And it was like, What? This is happening. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, and I guess even before that, how'd you guys get hooked up with Beatville Records? That, I honestly, dude, I have no idea. Well, Kid Chaos had done that Beatville Records. I have no idea. But I think that's after, that is, that's after the self-titled record, though. Right? Um, self-titled record's 97? Uh, I'm so oh, 2001, sorry, you're, I'm wrong. You're right, it is after Kid Chaos. It is Fadi's, Fadi's the best. Fadi remembers dates of everything <laughs> that happened. I'm like, hmm? No, I mean, I um, didn't mean to fuck you up. It is after the Kid no. Chaos. Kid Chaos yes. is on Vilebeat. That's why I think I got it. Definitely. Uh, Kid, Chaos, Kid Chaos was first. and But I have no idea how we linked up with Kid Chaos. I, I, I absolutely no recollection. Because that dude, Mark, was from Washington, D.C., and man, I have no idea. I really, it's, it is lost to, lost to time how we, how we linked up with them. And then, but then, yeah, gamblers through, through Kid Chaos. Yeah. Cause it seems like it was largely a ska label. Like it did Bim Ska records and gangsters records. And- yeah. And I guess maybe like, yeah, Kid Chaos got through the back door because we had horns. Horns. You're right. There it is. Yeah. That, that rocket vibe. Yeah. Which was the worst because it was all, I mean, we, I don't know why we made, I mean, I think it was just that anybody wanted to put out that record. They were like, okay. Uh, but we were so never not annoyed by like, oh, horn ska band. And we we're, you know, now it's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't people say that? But at the time it was like, no, we're not 
Rockstrap. Well, that was the divide, right? Like, it's like, I like the horn section in Rock from the Crypt, but I'm not into the, the horn section in, you know, Real Big Fish as much. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I was super, um, I'm still super obsessed with Rock from the Crypt. They're one of my favorite. It just, that's, that's how you write a big rock song for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think like you're saying, I think every single person who heard Rock from the Crypt the first time was like, I should start a band with fucking horns in it and make a rock and roll band yeah. with horns in it. Yeah, it's much more much more difficult. It's yeah. They're very special that they could do that and make <laughs> it great. Like it's I defy anyone else to do it and make it good. There's a lot of bands that like have that one song with horns and it's always like the eh, almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. Do you want to come back sometime for a part two? Please, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we went for a long time. I'm, and that's a lot of that's me because I, I get distracted by, a, I'm a kitten sees a butterfly and runs across a busy highway trying to chase it. I'm, I'm easily, I'm easily distracted. So I'm sorry if I rambled too much, dude. That's what the bread and butter of this podcast is. Without rambling, it would be a very short show. You know, <laughs> like I think yeah, a lot, the ramble is what makes it genius and stuff like that. But before I let you go, I guess like how did the uh, Draculas come together? I think initially. So got good friends with Zach over the years, uh, got, especially when we moved to Austin. Um, and I mean, he had some downtime and I think initially we were going to try and do a one-off show to do a really like, there's a, there's a South, there's a pre South by show that bands will just, the people will do like a makeshift band and cover an album or a cover, um, a band and and they did like descendants and minor threat and i think i did like one or two songs on those and and me and some of the guys me and rob and zach and a different drummer we're gonna do a ramones thing and i don't know why the ramones thing didn't end up happening but at some point zach was kind of like hey came to me and was like hey i have this one thing that i've been working on and i was like oh i've got this one thing that it's been sitting around and we showed it to each other and then me and Zach just really kind of clicked and, and we write songs really easily together and kind of vibe off each other a lot. And so it was just kind of like immediately like just, just like blah, all these songs kind of <laughs> came out. And uh, yeah, and then and then we it started, eventually got to, and initially it was kind of like, oh, it's like a side band. Like I got a lot of side bands. And then just through things and time and, and kind of where it's gotten to now, is like man you know like it's kind of taken over like that's kind of like the 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 more full-time band mm -hmm. and uh did you ever see hagfish back in the day i they yeah i saw them opening for somebody back in the day but you know they they it was one of those things like even though dallas and denton are like 45 minutes away it was kind of really far away like it was really and i kind of thought like oh that's like a those guys wouldn't want to hang out with us those are like professional musicians who like make money and fly all over the place i didn't think that they were like you know like in airplanes but i thought like oh they're on a major they're they're, they're like a whole other class and re and like after the fact talking is that like no not at all they were totally like they were slugging it out only they were just you know actually doing it a couple years 
before we ever did. You know, they were totally just, you know, eating, eating Taco Bell and sleeping in vans and in Motel 6s like, like anybody else. But for whatever, and some of it honestly kind of goes back to that weekly, that, mm-hmm. that weekly kind of like, propped all these Dallas bands up in such a huge way that I, and, and, and like didn't mention like Denton bands at all that I thought like, well, that's just like, those bands are huge and making it and they're like career musicians. And we're just like a bunch of idiots having fun in our hometown and we're just going to keep having fun. So I didn't really, I don't know. There was a, there was a weird divide. It wasn't like angry and it wasn't like, it wasn't like fuck those guys. It was just kind of like, a, I don't know. They're, they they they're somebody else doing something somewhere else. So I didn't I, I didn't like know Zach until really I'd probably met him during Hagfish, but I didn't like know him until after Hagfish was well and broken up. Yeah, like it feels like that band was done a real disservice by being on a major. Like if that record had come out on like Epitaph or or Fat, yeah, you know it would have it would have hit differently for sure. It totally would have. It totally would have. It was real. They they did a thing where that weekly, and like I, I don't think that weekly was doing anything wrong. It probably sounds like I'm talking shit about that weekly because they didn't cover my band. They weren't. It was just that uh, a kind of thing that like at the time I probably I, I don't even know that I hated the weekly at the time. Like it just was kind of like well that's this professional thing that's going away again. Like it's 45 minutes, but also like a light year away. There's like. Yeah. There's skyscrapers in Dallas. There's three buildings that have three stories in Denton. You know, like there's, <laughs> it would just seem like another world. But I remember the weekly at some point when they put out a record, they did a really genius thing that they put hagfish bumper stickers in one copy. So, like everybody, not everybody, but you would see a lot of hagfish bumper stickers. And you were thought, like, well, they must be millionaires that they can afford <laughs> to put bumper stickers in all the weeklies when we were like, you know, like, well, I think we can, I think if we really save up and we all pitch in, we can get the four inch sized round stickers from sticker guy, (laughs) 702 records, you know? Yeah. And they had full bumper stickers in the paper. It just seemed, and it's such a dumb thing because what that probably cost, I don't know, maybe, maybe $500. But at the time it was like, oh my God, they must be rich. Oh yeah. No, it's funny because like I picked up a copy of a Hagfish seven inch that had all these like promo inserts in it about the band, like these fun, I guess meant to be funny facts about band members. And there's one about Zach beating up his dad. And it's just really like insane, like not very funny story. And it's like, yeah, how does this help a band? And I don't know that story, and I can 100% tell you it is not true. I don't think that that <laughs> yes. happened at all. I asked Zach, uh, you know, just to – and when you read it, you're like, there's no way this is true. And, you know, just double-check it with Zach. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I had to send him a photograph of the old promo insert that came in the 7-inch. But, yeah, I don't think the major labels served him very well at all in retrospect. Yeah, th- those labels, you know, again, that that, that – um, I mean, go back to the toadies and I'm, I, I know the toadies guys. Okay. And I've never like discussed this with them, but you know, they, they had that number one hit possum kingdom that do you want to die? That was on, that was on five times an hour on MTV for a while. You know, that was regular, regular rotation. 
And then I know like when they went to do like their next record, it was that thing where they, you know, that major label with a lot of money for rock band time, they, they took a couple of years to record it. And then the major labels like, we don't hear hits, do it again. And they just, that thing, by the time they got to do another record, like everybody, the label was gone. It was just kind of one of those, like locally. And I definitely did not know these guys at the time, but like, you know, the story was very much like they were the classic got fucked over by the major label story. And Brutal Juice was kind of the same way too. Like it seemed like they put out this record that was, it didn't, it was a little more slick than they sounded, but it was still a really cool record. And I, I can't see people not liking their hit songs. And they had like a video on 120 minutes, but it was that weird thing of like, oh, this didn't immediately sell a bajillion copies. Like, yeah, we're done with you, which I still to this day can't understand how that works at all. Yeah, well, I guess it's just based on this sort of like money is the only metric that matters. Yeah. Kind of thing. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's so it's so weird with the toadies too, because that Possum Kingdom song originally came out on that Grass Records yeah. label. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and has probably some of the worst artwork on a record I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Is that like the, is that like the, the like cardboard looking one or is that the rubber next the one with the weird, the guy, like the painting of the guy, like floating through the red stuff. Yeah. This is like a minotaur wrestling a guy with a sword. Oh uh, yeah. 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 No, and, totally. And with like a font that's barely legible on the cover, but it's like, Man, I guess the songs are what did it for the band, not the not the artwork. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, but uh, this has been amazing, Mike. And anytime you want to come back, please know the door is always open. Well, I mean, we didn't get into it, but I got nothing but time right now. So anytime <laughs> is very good with me. I really enjoyed this. This is super fun. Thank you, Mike, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Mike's going to be back for a part two. In the near future, um, the band that I forgot was called Hash Palace. Um, but, you know, that's what we'll talk about it in part two. You know, we got part two to get into all that stuff. Uh, anyway, once again, pick up that Dracula's record, uh, Terminal Amusements. Give it a listen. and Because coming up in two days, also, Zach Blair from Rise Against, from the Draculas, of course, from uh, Guar from saving the fucking misfits from being murdered by the macho man Randy Savage with MVP. Check out Turned Out of Punk episode 101 for more on that. We'll be making his triumphant return to the show, and uh, I'm stoked for you to hear this one. It's a, it's a, a really fun conversation with uh, a really good bud, you know? But check out some of Zach's other appearances. He's made some some real doozies on this podcast, certainly. The, the one that you have to hear, his first appearance, definitely... And then episode 101 with him and MVP detailing the greatest story ever told in punk rock. And uh, also the live in Montreal episode is, is great with Don Letts. And uh, yeah, it, it's Zach's been, been on the show a few times and every time it's pretty awesome. Oh, we were on like a hype episode before that. There's, there's a bunch. Look up Zach Blair and, and check out all his various appearances on this show. I gotta, I think some of the older episodes aren't up on Spotify, so I gotta find a way to re-up them because you gotta hear those old ones. Man, there's some doozies in the, oh, drop my phone. There's some doozies in the back catalog. Oh, anyway, 
I'm going to be talking to you in like a, like, you know, a day anyway. So I'm just going to let you go on with your lives. I hope everyone's out there is uh, creating their own culture right now. Uh, please sign your organ donor cards. Um, give, give blood if you can, if it's safe for you to give blood. Uh, there's a real need for it right now. Um, stay safe. Uh, definitely stay safe. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, I love you. And, uh,